0: I've entitled my thoughts this morning, The Value of Friendship, and this is a bit of a practical subject, a bit of shifting gears from some of the things that we've been talking about over the past few weeks together. We considered, over the past few weeks, some very doctrinal things, at times some very deep things, and many, many practical things as a result of those doctrinal subjects that we considered. This past Friday night, I had the privilege of meeting a few of my preacher friends at a cabin in Chattanooga for a couple of days of fellowship, it was a great time together. These brothers are men who actually initially began conversing early during the shutdown in 2020 about technological things. It was a Facebook group of preachers that began conversing with each other about how to live stream, what microphone worked best with a mobile phone, how can you live stream with a computer, what camera to buy, what audio equipment to buy, etc., because as you know, during that time period, suddenly every preacher in the world had to jump into the internet, and praise God that we had been doing that since 2017, because everything was in place for us, and It made it easy to transition outside when we began to worship outside as we could not stand to be away from each other any longer. But as we faced the unique challenges of this past year, of that year, we began to be more of a system of support for one another, and this was a great blessing to each of the brethren who had the opportunity to converse and to be a part of one another's lives and ministries. As I was thinking on that trip and reflecting on it, on the way there, the things that we would enjoy, and and if you wonder what do preachers do when they come together, well, we went out and ate, and we drank a bunch of coffee, and one of them had a Super Nintendo. So let me just say that again, a Super Nintendo, and we played that for a little while. There was a hot tub. The cover never got taken off of it because we sat around and talked theology, We talked language studies, we talked church controversy from time to time, we talked about our respective ministries and the things that we have going on in our respective churches. We stayed up till 2 a.m. locally, we woke up, we checked out, we drove home. So that was a long night out on the town for a bunch of pastors. If you want to know what do preachers do when no one else is around, that was pretty much it. But as I was thinking on the trip and reflecting on it, I began to think more and more about the blessing of friendship and what scripture has to say about friendship and brotherhood and fellowship. And I felt impressed to share some thoughts with you along those lines this morning. Just focus on that word fellowship for a moment. We are fellows. We know what brotherhood means. The root of it is brother. Friendship, the root of that is friend. Fellowship is something that is so integral to the church which is what we'll discuss in a little bit because we are fellows. We are yoke fellows. We are to go through life with one another. As we begin this morning, I want to focus, I want to focus, I want to spend a little bit of time just on man's need for companionship. The first thing that we consider today is that God created man as a social creature. God did not create men to be alone. And when I say men, I have reference to mankind. I have reference to men and women. I have reference to human beings. God did not create human beings to be alone. Now, though we all have varying degrees of comfort in large crowds, we were at a get-together recently and someone a little bit more of an introvert made the comment that I need to go home and recharge. I've been around people enough. Well, I can sympathize with that, especially with large large crowds. If I'm in a large crowd for an hour or two, I don't consider us a large crowd, your family, but if I'm around a bunch of strangers or people I don't know or people that I barely know, it's exhausting and I have to go be away for a while to recharge myself. There are times that we need to be away. Jesus himself departs many times to be alone so he can pray. We need to spend time alone with the Lord. We need to spend time in prayer. Being alone to recharge is a good thing. But that isn't to be the permanent state of human beings. We are made as social creatures. We're not to be outright loners. For proof of that, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2 and verse 18... Now, I want you to notice Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God finishes creation. He looks at everything that He had made, and it was very good. Understand, when God made something, whether it be the light, whether it be the dry land, whether it be the herb-yielding sea, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, or Adam himself and Eve, when God creates, it is good, yea, yea. It is very good. And yet in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So think about that glaring contrast from everything that you could read in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 up until that point. Everything is good. But there's one thing in creation that is not good. God's special creation, Adam, Made in God's image, unlike the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, Adam is alone, and Adam being alone is not good. I love to focus on that when we think about marriage, because shortly thereafter we find the origin of marriage. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He takes one of his ribs from him, and he closes up the flesh thereof, and from that rib he creates Adam's companion. He creates Eve. It's a great passage to quote when you give a sermon at a wedding. It's a great passage to quote in a sermon series on weddings because this is the reason God created marriage. Up until this point, God has brought every animal to Adam and Adam has named them. That means that when God created Adam, Adam had the ability given by God to speak in a language and to communicate. Adam would have been a brilliant man. We think of primitive man as a cave-dwelling numbskull who can do nothing but take colors and draw on the sides of caves. But Adam, the first man, had all the genetic programming, the genetic code that would be dispersed among the rest of us. He was brilliant, and he has the ability to communicate simply by virtue of God training him to do that when he was made. God giving him the ability to do that, and Adam names these animals. But in all of the animal kingdom, there is no companion there for Adam. And so God gives unto this man a gift. He gives unto this man a wife, and he does so. Why? Because it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, for those of you that are married, as we think about friendship today and the value of it, we'll say so much from Scripture about the value of friendship. Might I just say your spouse, if you are married, is to be your best friend. If you do not have a spouse, if you do not have a spouse, might I suggest you begin looking at some of the best friends who are of the opposite gender, you have to specify that today. Before Rachel and I were a couple, Rachel and I were friends. And we got along just fine. We had the same interests. We liked the same things. Our first date wasn't even a date. We were just two friends going to the movies together. And by the time we come home, she just could not resist my charm, my intellect, my Handsome stature. I really have no idea what it was. Probably my trumpet playing. That was about the only thing I had going for me in 19 something. You know, it's a long time ago. We go to see a movie, and it was just as friends. There were two other guys there. We just rode together as buddies. If you don't have a spouse, Thinking about friends, and I know that most people here today are married, but we'll have people watch online and people listen to the podcast afterwards. Looking among your friends is a great place to find a spouse. So many times, well, you know, we would go out, but we're just such good friends, we don't want to mess it up. Guess what? If you're 16 and you're saying that, or 18 and saying that, there's coming a day when you're really not going to be friends anymore because everybody's going to get married, they're going to go to their separate houses, they're going to move to separate towns. There is no female and male who hung out together together at 16, or even 18, that now are best friends that go and do things together. That is an excuse, by the way, that girls tell guys when they don't really want to go out with them. If you didn't know that, now you do. It's called the friend zone. Anyway. But I think it is a great thing for you to look among your friends to find a spouse because you have common interests. You enjoy being with one another. It's a great thing. Your spouse ought to be your best friend, and it's a good place to look if you don't have one. In the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, is a passage that I think on a lot when I think about fellowship among brothers in Christ in specific, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 we actually find some interesting language about the blessing of fellowship, and as we begin to look at how the Lord Jesus... Dealt in his ministry, we'll see that he even follows this pattern as he commissions men to go and to minister. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 4:9, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, if you have two people laboring, you can get more done. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Now this is the ancient world, there were no cell phones, there were no buttons to push, I've fallen, I can't get up. If you fell and got hurt and you were out there in the field and you're taking care of your sheep, if you fall into a hole, if you break your leg and you're alone, you can crawl back. Sometimes, many times, people would die before they made it back to where it was safe because they're out alone in the middle of a pasture predators could take them terrible things could happen to them because they were injured but if a person is not alone let's say if it's a couple of shepherds and they're out in the wilderness and they're taking care of their sheep one of them falls and breaks his knee or breaks his ankle breaks his leg and there's another shepherd there with him the shepherd that's there with him can run and find some leather to you know, he can Find a stick and he can make a splint. He can help him get up. He can put him over his shoulder and help him walk to safety. Because there's more than one there, there is safety. There is danger, conversely, in being alone. Now, to be very clear regarding marriage, because this isn't a sermon about marriage, this is a sermon about friendship. In the church and with the Lord, we can find companionship so that we are not alone. If you are single, if you are widowed, if you're a widower, if you're not yet married, or if you're divorced, and you are in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is family and there is a Savior that makes it where you're never alone unless you want to be alone. And I know enough about Primitive Baptist and I know enough about Flint River that if you're lonely and you say, someone come visit me, I'm lonely, It won't take very long at all. People will be knocking on your door and you might be wanting them to go away before it's too long. If you put the SOS out, people will come to your house. They will bring food. They might bring books or movies. When we had COVID, like when we had had COVID, there were a couple of you that came to the bottom of the steps. You didn't come up and and talk to us. And we sat there for like an hour Shivering, because we talked from the door while some folks were out in the yard. And it happened a few times. Folks stopped by during that. And it was great because we got to see people. I think one of the greatest dangers of this past year was being segregated off by ourselves and away from friends and family. That was one of the terrible things that happened in the school system. If you want to know more about things like that, you can talk to my brother who's a mental health liaison for the Board of Education in the county in which he resides. But mental health issues among young people skyrocketed this past year because they're alone. Mom and dad are at work. Or worse, they're trapped in the house with a monster. And I don't mean a monster in the closet or under the bed. I mean an abusive parent. And so mental health problems skyrocket, but one of the reasons for that is because people were alone when God did not make us to be alone. We are designed to be one with another. Solomon says, If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him. Another reason. Again, if two lie together... Then shall they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? If you're in the middle of the cold desert and you're stranded with another person and you've got a blanket, the two of you can lay back to back and cover yourself with a blanket and you can stay warm so that you don't freeze as, if you, or as you would freeze if you were all by yourself. Some of you that are older and grew up in a time period without electricity and gas heating and central heating and air... In our little world today, it's always 70 degrees. I saw this silly thing that went out from some government agency and it was recommended temperatures, you know, and they were like, well, 78 during the day, 82 at night. I'm like, if it's 82 at night, I'm sleeping on the back porch. Because it's gonna be colder outside than it is inside. I'm not sleeping in 80 degrees when I have an air conditioner. I bought an air conditioner, I pay for electricity. Look, we have nuclear power. If y'all want easy, cheap power, we run out of coal, and we run out of wind, and we run out of gas, and we run out of water, go fire up some nuclear reactors and make me some 70 degrees. Because I don't want to be sitting in my house sweating. That's why I have a house with an air conditioner. I'm going to be inside. You got me? Amen? Some of you grew up in a day when there might have been four of you in a bed under five covers Keeping each other warm in the middle of the winter because all you have is a fireplace, and when mom and dad go to sleep, that fireplace goes out and the house cools down. Any of you remember those days? Can't say that I was there. If two are together, then they can huddle together and they can have heat. They can keep each other warm. Solomon, again, sharing wisdom of not being alone. The wisdom of not being alone. If one prevail against him, Two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, what this means is if someone attacks you, because in reality, in this sinful world in which we live, people attack you, if a man attacks a man, he may get, the man who's being attacked, may get defeated. He may get beaten. He may get killed. He may be robbed. But if there are two men there and one attacks them, unless they're dealing with some sort of a really tough guy, two men stand a far better chance of dealing with an attacker than a single man alone. Again, practical reasons why it's good for us to not be alone, but for us to have friends, a spouse, brethren, fellowship. And then he goes on to say a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And he has reference to making a rope. If you've got a rope made of three Cords wound together as a rope, it's far stronger than any of the three by themselves. And so if you've got three friends together and an attacker come to assail them, well, you've got a man on each side. I guess if somebody attacks you, you can just get on each side of them and just pummel the dude, but he doesn't attack you, he doesn't hurt you, he doesn't kill you. That's all Solomon's wisdom. Again, two is better than one and a three-cord threefold cord is not quickly broken. Another thought to further emphasize our need for companionship as brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to notice a passage from the book of Luke chapter 14. Now just to remind you of some biblical terminology, whether you're dealing with Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 31 Matthew 9, the closing remarks of Matthew 9, that God's children are as sheep scattered abroad, having no shepherd. John 10 describes God's people as His sheep. He's the good shepherd. He gives His life for the sheep. Other sheep He has that are not of the fold of the Jews, them also He must bring over and over and over. The term of sheep, the concept of a sheep and a fold and a flock and a shepherd is used to describe the Lord's people. To borrow from that terminology, it is not good, it is not good when a sheep wanders from the fold. In Luke 15, Jesus uses this reality in a parable What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends, his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, the purpose of this parable was to shoot down the Pharisees that said, Jesus is eating with sinners. He receives sinners. Praise God, Jesus receives sinners. We should never be like the Pharisees that look at people who come into the church who have a troubled past and judge them or be cruel to them or Pharisaical to them. Every time someone did that, Jesus rebuked them. He gives this parable. As the Pharisees murmur, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them of this man who loses a sheep. What would be the danger of losing a sheep? This man is willing to leave 99 sheep to go into the wilderness and to search for the sheep that is lost, to put it on his shoulder and carry it back to the fold. And when he gets back to the fold with it, he rejoices so much that he calls his neighbors. This man stood at risk of losing his sheep permanently. Now in this parable, Jesus is talking about the joy over a sinner that repents. And by the way, Jesus is the shepherd. You are his sheep When you were dead in sin, He went, He threw you over His shoulder, He brought you into His fold, and He has saved you, and the angels of heaven rejoice that God has saved you and God has saved me. But you know, there are so many times in our lives when we wander away from the fold. And when we come back to the fold, you know who ultimately it is leading you back to the fold of Christ? The minister may reach out, he may call He may text, he may email. You have church friends who might stop by and visit and make sure everything's okay. But you know who ultimately it is? When a child of God, a sheep of God leaves the fold, who brings that sheep back into the fold, it's Christ. Because He is the shepherd. We are under shepherds. We look to the sheep. But there are so many times when a sheep has wandered so far into the wilderness that as under shepherds we can't even find him. If we did find them, we don't know what to do with them, and it takes Christ bringing them back. Even in repentance for a child of grace, it takes Christ and the grace of God to bring us back into the fold. But notice from this parable a couple of things. Sheep are gathered in folds. Sheep are gathered in folds. Now, as we think about friendship today, one of the points that we want to emphasize is that... Our best friends are to be the people that we worship God with. Our most beloved friends are to be the people that we come to the throne of grace with, that we worship with, that we sing with, that we pray with, that we hear preaching with. Our best friends are to be the people of our own churches, of the church that you belong to, but other churches, people of like faith and Christians in general. Christians and you mean, Brother Ben, you can be friends with people who aren't primitive Baptist. You know, sometimes in my life it's been easier to be friends with non-primitive Baptists. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Maybe we should be a little more kind and a little more like sheep from time to time. Sheep are gathered in flocks. A sheep who leaves the fold is in danger. Let that sink in. A sheep who leaves the fold is in danger. What sort of danger is he in? Well, in Jesus' day, a literal sheep that wanders from a literal fold can be picked off. By what? You have wolves. You have lions. You have all sorts of carnivores. You have injury. Maybe a sheep has wandered away. He hasn't been... I guess the word biblically would be shorn. He hasn't had his wool sheared off in some period of time, and he becomes heavy and weighted down. He falls over on his side. Who's going to pick him up? When David says, Oh, why art thou cast down, O my soul? The word there, cast down, was a shepherding term. David was a shepherd. He'd seen this many times. A sheep loaded down with wool, when it falls over, it cannot get up of its own power so many times. Imagine it tumbling down a hill and becoming injured, and there it is. Helpless, waiting on nature to take its course. The buzzards begin to circle, and soon it meets its end, and all of the courses of nature, the insects and the animals, make prey of what's left of it. It's very graphic, and a shepherd would understand that. A sheep that wanders from the fold is in danger. Now, I use that to emphasize not only the value of the church and why God has given it to us for friendship, but also the value of having friends in general. Good Christian friends are a salvation to us in this life. We deliver one another. We are delivered by the influence of godly people. I can look back on my marriage when I was a young man and a foolish man. I don't know if it would even be worthy to call me a man, and I can remember seeing examples of godly husbands, men who love their wives, men who raise their children in the faith, and when I would think about what I was, I would be ashamed, but at the same time, I would be encouraged and I would think when when I'm older, that's the type of man that I want to be. Seeing the example of godly men caused me to be a better man because godly friends in the church literally model discipleship and maturity. We are mentored and it is a deliverance to us. It is a salvation to us. We grow, we are strengthened, we mature through looking at and having godly friends, godly examples in the church. A sheep that is alone is in danger. Think about this for just a moment. What animal is so often contrasted with wolves in the New Testament? A sheep. I said that backwards. What animal is so often contrasted with sheep in the New Testament? Kind of ruined the punchline there, didn't I? It's okay. Wolves are contrasted with sheep. Sheep. What do you call a lone, violent person in this world? What are they so often called? A lone wolf. We instinctively know wolves so many times go it alone. Now, there are, sure, packs of wolves, and you can see them, but so many times the predator goes it alone. If you see a bobcat, it's rare that it's with other animals. Coyotes travel in packs, but so many times when they're out doing their thing, they're running around alone, see them in a subdivision, see them on the side of the road. Predators often travel alone. They might congregate from time to time, but they so often go it alone. Sheep that go it alone often find themselves the prey of the predator. The wolves go alone, but the sheep are to be together. Sheep are to congregate. We are to have friends, and the best friends that we could have are people in the faith. Now this passage in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9 about being together by two, we actually find this wisdom incorporated by Christ as he sends the twelve disciples out to preach the gospel. In the book of Mark, chapter 6, when Jesus begins to send the disciples out, he sends them out two by two. He sends them out two by two. Why would he do this? Because of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Who, who gave Solomon that wisdom? God gave Solomon that wisdom. And so that's literally God channeling to you through the pen of Solomon that it is better to not be alone. There is strength to have companionship. And as the flock of God, our companions are to be the people of the house of God. As Jesus sends these twelve out, you notice in verse 7 of Mark chapter 6, He called unto Him the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits, commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no strip, no bread, no money in their purse, but to be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And the reason that he does this is because they are to go, and as he tells them, the workman is worthy of his reward. You just go and you preach, God will take care of you. If people reject you, shake the dust of your shoes off as a testimony against them. If they receive you, go into a house and don't go house to house, but stay in that house and use it as the center hub for the faith in that community. Basically, he's giving them instruction on how to constitute churches. But you notice when he sends them out, he sends them out two by two. As we come to the book of Acts and the ministries of the apostles after Christ ascends to glory and he pours out the Holy Spirit upon them and they go about to minister and to constitute churches and they begin evangelizing Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and All through the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, in Eastern Europe, we find that they always went two by two, at minimum. Paul sometimes traveled with an entourage, but even then, you have it described as what? Paul and Silas. When Paul and Silas, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas initially went out, they have a falling out over Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. And so you have Paul and Barnabas, you have Paul and Silas. You have Peter and Mark. You have men who labored together as pairs and in pairs. And so many times we find them in the book of Acts mentioned in conjunction with one another. They went out and they were not alone because they found strength together in having companionship. And so we find strength today in having companionship. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the subject of friendship And there are warnings in Proverbs about being a surety for your friend, co-signing. I just opened to Proverbs 6 and the first verse there warns against being a co-signer for a friend. But we want to share with you some of the encouragements of friendship, some of the benefits of friendship in the Proverbs. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loveth at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A true friend will love you at all times. Now, that tells me that if I want to be a true friend to people, then I need to unconditionally love them, don't I? Now, that doesn't mean that, again, we mentioned this last week, if they're abusing me, well, that doesn't mean that I walk up and tolerate being abused. But it does mean that I forgive them and I love them. And a friend, a true friend, is to love unconditionally. They're supportive. There's a lot of people that, are friends so much as if it's that their friends are doing things that they themselves would want to do. You ever had a friend like that, that the only things that they spoke highly of that you do are things that they themselves would want to do, whether it's the choice of a home or a vehicle or clothing or music? If I'm your friend and something is wholesome and you like it, if it's not what I like, I shouldn't put it down because it's not what I like. If it makes you a happy person and it's okay with God, then praise God, I ought to be happy that you're happy. A true friend is happy that you are happy. A friend loves at all times. A true friend loves at all times. Now, by the way, as we begin to look at some of the aspects of friendship in Proverbs, we'll see that this does not mean, it does not mean that A friend is going to go along with decisions when those decisions are sinful. No. A friend loves at all times, and sometimes loving you means telling you this is not right. And so let's look at Proverbs 27 and verse 6. Proverbs 27 and verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, if you walked up to me today and you slashed me with a knife or punched me in the nose, that's not what Solomon is talking about in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6. Please do not walk up to your friend and stab them in the arm. When Sodom says faithful are the wounds of a friend, he's saying that when a friend sees you going down a pathway that is destructive and he intercedes with biblical wisdom and counsel with pleas for you to repent, when he tells you that what you are doing is wrong, he is not hurting you. He's not trying to destroy you. You know, we live in such a uh, my truth and your truth and he spoke his truth and this is her truth sort of society because of relativism. That there's really no such thing in our minds anymore as truth. And the most heinous thing a person could do is tell another person that they're wrong. And so we have to retreat to our safe space. Help me find a safe space. My feelings have been hurt. When we do that which is wrong and destructive and sinful, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It isn't wrong if a friend says, Ben, what you are doing is not right, and I'm worried about it. That's what a friend is supposed to do. That's what a parent does, isn't it? I think we've taken that philosophy to parenting too, but well, I can't tell them they're wrong. They'll get mad at me. If my kids aren't mad at me, a good Substantial portion of the time, I'm probably not doing my job. Walked through the house the other day, and there's some song playing on the radio, and it's got these cuss words that aren't bleeped out, and turn that garbage off! I can hear people begin to scatter and scamper, like when you turn the lights on in the kitchen in the middle of the night, and bugs run every direction. That did not happen at my house, by the way, but it, it's a metaphor got kind of to turn it off as quickly as possible. Take a bath. I don't want to take a bath. I didn't ask. You, you think this was a question? This is not up for debate. Brush your teeth. Well, I don't want to brush my teeth. Well, I don't want to pay for dental visits, so brush your teeth. When you get old and you have teeth, you can thank me then. When a friend is over of the opposite gender, the door is not shut. Why? Obvious reasons. I don't let parties go upstairs. You know, you got all these people that wander around a neighborhood nomadically like they don't have a home to go to. They wander into my house. You're not going upstairs. There's too many of you. I'm sorry. Whoa. I don't need to give you an answer. I pay the mortgage. Those are mostly not hypothetical. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. There are so many times in life that we have to tell somebody something that they don't want to hear because we're doing them a service and a favor because they were on a destructive pathway. That's what preaching is about so many of the times. So much of the time, preaching is about that. And I emphasize here that if I'm stepping on your toes, I'm doing it with bruised feet. Whatever I say that's convicting from this word has convicted me the entire time I've studied it throughout the week. We're all in this together. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend holds us accountable. A real friend holds us accountable. Do you know the modern Christian does not like accountability? One of the the practices, one of the identifying marks of the church that Jesus built into the church is accountability. Accountability. We are to hold one another accountable. Do you know that's why there's church discipline in the church? To hold one another accountable? In modern Christianity, church is no longer completely abandoned church discipline. They don't hold one another accountable. Because if somebody gets mad and you hold people accountable pastors that build empires are terrified of having a congregation the size of ours when they really want a congregation that takes, you know, Joe Davis Stadium to hold people. And so that's the last thing that contemporary Christian pastors do. No, we want to tell them things that make them feel good. Well, I want you to feel good, but I want you to feel good about Christ. I don't want you to feel good about your flesh or your sins or sinful choices, or anything such as that, because that will ultimately kill you because the broad road leads to destruction. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Conversely, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You remember there was a man that came to Jesus in his personal ministry and kissed him? What was his name? Judas Judas Iscariot. And he did so to betray him so they would know how to identify who Christ was. Jesus says, hello, friend. Judas kisses Jesus and the men arrest him and take him away. It's better to be wounded by a friend over a real legitimate issue than it is for an enemy to flatter you with deceitful kisses. You know another thing that Proverbs warns against? The flattering tongue. If somebody comes up and they're talking to you and you're the best thing since sliced bread and they can't say enough nice things about you, let me just tell you now, beware. Because Proverbs says that a person that does that is doing so because they have an ulterior motive. They're deceiving you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Similarly, Proverbs 27 and verse 9, Thine own friend and thy excuse me, ointment and perfume rejoice the heart, so doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. That means that good counsel from a friend, remember faithful are the wounds of a friend, good counsel from a friend is like perfume in the nose. If you have your head in the right place, if your mind is in the right place, and someone comes to you with biblical counsel, a good godly friend, to you, that godly counsel is like breathing in fresh perfume. It's a beautiful odor to smell. It's a beautiful odor to smell. Verse 27, verse 17 of chapter 27, "'Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend.'" Iron sharpeneth iron. You know, iron is a very strong, strong metal. And to them, this is advanced technology in that day and age. If you had iron, you had to have something hard to sharpen it with. And so you sharpen iron with iron. As iron sharpens iron, a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So many times I have heard that verse applied to when Christians get together and debate out doctrinal issues. Iron sharpens iron. You get a couple of old stalwarts going at it, debating their positions, and generally the result of that is greater precision in doctrine. But we, count, we sharpen the countenance of our friend... As iron sharpens iron, you have blunt objects meeting each other, and it has a beneficial effect on it. By the way, I laughed at several verses in this chapter that have to do with friendship. Let me just give you this one as a bit of comedy. He that blesseth his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. The way I interpreted that is you're sleeping in your bed and someone comes bursting in your room shouting praises to you. Ah, go away. I'm asleep. You know, some of us are not morning people. My brother is a morning person. When he worked with me as a land surveyor, 5 a.m. he's bouncing through the house like a Looney Tunes character. Let me just tell you, 5 a.m. I'm not in a good mood. By 11 a.m. I'm getting there. And I'm okay at about 9 at night. But 5 a.m., I'm not in a good mood unless I haven't gone to sleep yet. So 5 a.m. is not the time to jump in my room and proclaim my praises with a loud voice. I laughed at that one when I read it this week. So much of this chapter deals with friendship and wisdom. Proverbs 18, lastly, from the Proverbs... A man that hath friends, verse 24, must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now when we began looking at the Proverbs, chapter 17 and verse 17, you notice that it said that a brother is born for adversity. A brother is born for adversity. Some have interpreted that in light of Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau, to say that brothers are born to be adversaries. But I believe that Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau are exceptions to the rule more than they are depictions of that principle. Brothers in the flesh, growing up, they may fight every single day of the week, but you get some neighbor kid coming in there picking on a little brother, and it's going to go down. They're born for adversity. When brothers are attacked, they begin to circle the wagon. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But before we consider that principle, the first principle of Proverbs 18, 24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly. There's a couple of different ways that this has been interpreted. First of all, some interpret this as a statement of irony. If you have a lot of friends, then you're going to have a lot of people to be friendly to, and that can be exhausting. Well, I don't know that Solomon was the introvert that maybe we might read into that if we were to interpret it in that light. Most seem to interpret this as saying, if you want to have friends, you must be friendly. If you want to have friends, you must be a friendly person. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. Which tells me that if I am a grumpy person to people who are around me, I'm not going to have a lot of friends. If I insult people who are around me, then I'm not going to have a lot of friends. If I am rude, I'm not going to have a lot of friends. If I'm manipulative or abusive, I'm not going to have a lot of friends. Now, you know me, and you know that I like to tease and I like to pick, but most of the things that I do or I say when I tease or I pick, to put it in a lack of theological terms, is pretty stupid. Right? The, the jokes that I say are pretty dumb. They're not intended to, to harm you. And I can tell pretty quick if a person doesn't like to tease and if their feelings are going to get hurt if they tease. And so guess what I do not do? I don't tease them. Now some of you receive the brunt of a lot of my tormentings here. We won't mention Sister Hannah from the stand. But most of the things that I say or do are pretty childish and just dumb. And I don't mind being teased if it's along those lines either. I don't mind it at all. You know, I, I enjoy the the silly, you know, the Office references and the Michael Scott jokes and all of that. That's funny. I don't, I don't mind that at all. And in private preacher groups, there's a lot of that, and we tease each other and we have a good time. Teasing is fine if the person is okay with it and it's not destructive. One thing you will never hear me do. I will not. I will not tease the way you dress. I will not tease your hair. I will not tease your shape, whether it's very skinny or otherwise. When I was a little kid, let me, let me just tell you, when I was a little kid, okay, the, the insults in elementary school were shrimp. Now, those of you that were not small, you probably weren't called a shrimp. But shrimp was something that I lived with for several years. Another one was Dumbo. Now, why do you think they would call me Dumbo? Now, I don't know. Maybe because my ears were this size when I was three and my head hadn't grown into it. You know how bad that hurt my feelings as a little kid? People make fun of your teeth. People make fun of your size. Alfalfa, that was a good one. Pee-wee Herman, I never heard that one before. A little mean child would make fun of the shape of my head, saying that I was an alien and not an illegal alien like one from Mars. Well, there's no aliens on Mars. You know, King Tut had a head shape like mine. They called it the royal skull. So, ha-ha, how about that? You know things like that hurts people's feelings and that's the sort of thing that's destructive to friendships. We don't want to be like that. And if we tease, make it silly where we can have a good time and laugh and enjoy it, you know, but we certainly don't want to be destructive. We have to be cautious not to be destructive to the things that we say. I'm guilty in high in high school after years of being made fun of, I was mean as a snake, maybe a three-headed snake that could breathe fire. That was really, really mean because that sort of thing, it makes you mean. It makes you a mean person. You become calloused and you begin to reciprocate. You learn how to use your words to hurt people. We have to be very, very cautious. If there was one thing that I could go back and change from my life, I would make myself not mean with my tongue when I was younger. That would be one thing that I would go back and fix. If you have friends... If you want to have friends, you have to show yourself friendly. You can't be mean to people and then wonder why. Well, they just don't want to be around me. Well, if you were mean to them, that's probably why. It doesn't mean every time someone avoids you, you were mean to them. There are some people that are mean to you. But a man that has friends must show himself friendly. Lastly, if you notice in that passage, there's a friend that sits closer than a brother. We've all had to deal with loneliness to one degree or another in our lives, and this is why God gave us marriage. Because if we're lonely and we have a spouse, then we have someone to go and to enjoy friendship with, or even better, to annoy themselves. One of the things that I spend at least half the waking hours of every day doing is getting on Rachel's nerves. Really, I would encourage it. Guys, go get on your wife's nerves. Make stupid jokes Follow her around the house whistling and catcalling. You say, well, that sounds like toxic masculinity. No, that's just, how, that's just how I treat my wife. I don't know. It's not toxic masculinity. Follow her around getting on her nerves. You know, I mean, that's, that's what makes a healthy marriage. I believe we're too uptight in this country today. I don't want to offend anybody. Well, even if, a, even if it offends her, you'll have a good time. What do you do if you don't have a lot of friends? First of all, let me just say that you have friends here. You have friends here. That hymn that we sang concerning Zion this morning, they're my best friends, my kindred dwell. I have friends in the church that are twice my age and half my age. People talk about, you know, you homeschoolers, you're you're not going to have any sort of social etiquette among your children, and and I've met some homeschoolers that might be that way, but by and large, you take a 13-year-old homeschool boy, he can go out and work with Brother Hewlin in his early 80s, and he might be able to play with a six-year-old on the playground because he's around people of all ages every day. And most homeschoolers go to a church, and they're around people at church all the time too, but in the church, I've got friends twice my age. Half my age? You are my friends. If you don't have friends in this world, then you have friends in the church. You say, well, nobody at church has invited me to go out or hung out with me. Come talk to me, and I'll give you a list. I'll put you on some call lists, and we'll get you nice and integrated in with everyone here so that you're not lonely. That's one of the biggest problems that pastors had to deal with last year was people being segregated and off to themselves. When That's not how God meant us to be. We're meant to be together. We need to be together. If you don't have friends in this world, you have friends here. You say, we, we don't have the same common interest. That's okay. You've got one common interest that's greater than all, and that's Christ. The church is a place for Friendship. Along those lines, this is why churches can never become snobby places. It's a problem in some areas. Whether by reason of the church having a reputation among our people, sometimes that happens. The church just being in a general culture, a community, where people have that attitude on average. You walk through Target and everybody has that attitude. The church must never be a snobby place. The church is not only to be welcoming The church is to be inclusive, and there is a difference. You can be welcoming and not inclusive. We're so glad you're here today. Awesome. We're so thankful you're here. Have a seat. But then they don't include them. Let me tell you what. When you come into Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, we'll hand you the keys. We'll hand you a hammer. We'll hand you a mop. We'll hand you a leaf blower. We'll hand you... Hey, you want to be on a committee? we got a project going on. You could be on a committee. We don't do anything in private channels. And if you've got an interest in it, then we'll merge and mesh you right in as a lively stone into the wall. You need to be welcoming and inclusive. I've trained our little ones. If there's somebody new in the church and nobody's talking to them, surround them and talk to them. Because there have been so many times we've gone to an event or a meeting and, you know, you you sit by yourself in a pew. Your kids play by themselves outside and you go to the lunchroom and you sit by yourself at a table. I don't want anybody to sit by themselves at a table here unless they want to. And then I'm going to encourage them not to. The church is a place for friendship. And so churches can't be snobby. There's no excuse for it. We're to be welcoming. We're to be inclusive. I have great news, however. Even if we have no friends in this world, and there are times that we feel that way, you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You know, there were times in this book that men are called the friend of God. Moses, for instance, he's different than all the other prophets of God. You remember when others began to say, hey, God speaks through us like he does Moses. Why do we have to listen to Moses? And God said to them, I don't speak through Moses like I do the prophets. I talk to him as a friend talks to a friend face to face. God was Moses' friend to such a degree that they, as it were, talked face to face. Moses was the friend of God. You know what James 2 says about Abraham? When he went and offered up Isaac on the mount, and God stops him, of course, he says that he was called the what? The friend of God. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If a spouse forsakes you, if your family forsakes you, if a church forsakes you, Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. There is always a friend for you in your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to demonstrate this as we close today from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul, at the end of his life, heartbreakingly so, was largely forsaken. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed into Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. I don't interpret that to mean that Crescens and Titus had forsaken him, forsaken him, but they had left him. He's in jail. They've got to go minister and every time one goes on another journey to minister, more and more of that entourage that Paul went with was gone. He tells him the cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus when you come, when thou comest, bring with thee. Bring my clothes. I left it. Bring my clothes. I'm cold. The books. I want to read, especially the parchments. I want to write. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And these are good men that forsook him; they ran and they hid. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stuck with me. The Lord stood rather with me; He stuck with Him. And strengthen me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. By the way, when Paul uses that terminology, he's not speaking metaphorically. Alexander betrays him. Everyone runs from Paul. Paul has to give an answer before magistrates. He would have been delivered to a lion... But God stood with him and God delivered him. The church is a place for friends. We have a desperate need for friends. And if you have no friends, if you find yourself lonely, call upon your Savior because he's the friend that sticks closer than even a brother. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for friendship. Thank you for fellowship in the church. Lord, we know that we're your sheep and you're our shepherd, so Keep us secure in the fold. Keep us from wandering. We know, Lord, that there's such danger out in this world if we leave the fold. For the fold is the place of the shepherd. The fold is the place of the green grass and the still waters and the under-shepherds who watch for the wolves. We pray, Father, that we would be friendly, that we would have friends. We pray, Lord, that we would love one another the way that You have loved us. We pray, Lord, that we would understand that even if all forsook us, that you would stand with us because you never leave us and you never forsake us. Forgive us of our many sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.